the greatest stars, cross, cross medium stars of all time. Uh, he has been a spaceman, but in this one, he is a goblin king surrounded uh. by some Jim Henson puppet goblins. Awesome. Kay, have you seen The Labyrinth? I have not, shockingly mm -hmm. enough. Shocking. TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Dark Crystal. Oh! Where you go with a head like that? Hmm? George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible, and nothing is what it seems. Everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars with no one. The world of Labyrinth. Hello and welcome to another episode of K Have You Seen? I'm Kari. I'm Kyle. And this is the podcast that reminds you of the babe. Kyle, you know the proper response to this now. <laughs> what babe? The babe with the power. What power? Power voodoo. You do. Remind me of the babe. We are talking about the labyrinth, obviously. Of course. Give us a quick synopsis from your perspective. Sure. So Jennifer Connelly plays Sarah, 15-year-old girl in the real world who is into fantasy, uh, she's sort of in that awkward teenage phase of moving past the toys and the stuffed animals. Um, she's frustrated because she has to babysit her brother Toby, and she wishes that the Goblin King would take him away uh, right, now. right now. Well, the Goblin King, played by David Bowie, does take Toby away and tells her that she can only rescue Toby by going through a huge labyrinth uh, that he has built uh, outside of his castle in this fantasy realm. Uh, so she spends the rest of the movie working her way through the labyrinth and encountering a bunch of Muppets, some of whom are helpful, some of whom provide further obstacles. And in the end, she has to face the Goblin King, who poses a unique kind of challenge that is not as easily defined as mazes and monsters. Mm -hmm. Good, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, IMDb has 15-year-old Sarah resents her baby brother Toby and secretly wishes that he will just disappear. Her wish comes true when goblins kidnap the boy. Feeling responsible and guilty about his abduction, she sets forth to retrieve him and finds herself on the adventure of a lifetime. To rescue her brother, she must sneak into the castle of the Goblin King, which is in the center of a fantastical labyrinth. But the task is easier said than done, for the maze is filled with strange creatures and mind-bending puzzles, and nothing is really as it seems. So yeah, pretty much spot pretty on. Pretty much, yeah. So I have to ask, how did you know anything about this movie? What was your familiarity with this movie, and what did you think when you realized you had to watch it? Sure. So I definitely had heard of it. Um, I feel like it would be hard to not at least be aware of this movie uh, these mm -hmm. days. Um, I knew that David Bowie and Jennifer Connelly were the stars. I knew that it was a Jim Henson joint. I knew that it had become uh, hugely beloved as an 80s children's classic slash nostalgic favorite. Um, I did go in, I went in with an open mind because, as you know, I have a very mixed record with watching children's movies for the first time as an adult. Yes. Um, and I, like I say, I went into it with an open mind, and I do appreciate this movie uh, for its many merits. I tried not to be overly critical of it, only because I know that this is not necessarily a movie designed for a 29-year-old to be watching it for the first time, not mm. necessarily. Um, but yeah, I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it has, it has ups and downs like all movies do, but I thought that it was definitely, um, it's unique. It's very, um, very much has that Jim Henson feel to it, mm -hmm. um, in a, in a different way than like the Muppet 
movie or something like that has it. It's like it kind of it's pretty clear that Jim Henson was exercising a different aspect of his creativity um, and kind of trying to take the, his his you know, unique skills and creations into a different direction than what he had become famous for. Because um, I think he did the Dark Crystal before this, like mm -hmm. pretty shortly before this. And so this felt like kind of taking that um, atmosphere and that yeah. tone and that kind of fantasy element and doing something different with it. And I think that it, uh, I think that it worked out. Nice. So did you, have you seen other Jim Henson movies? Like you are, how much of a Muppets, Jim Henson, whatever else fan would you consider? I yourself? really like the Muppets. I okay. think that like the Muppet movie is great. I used to watch the Muppet show a lot when I was a kid and it was on reruns. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, you know, mixed bag with the other Muppet related movies. I really enjoyed the um, Jason Segel, The Muppets. Oh, yeah. I thought yeah. that movie was great. It was great. I didn't see any of the sequels, but I think yeah. that was the last one that was great, maybe. The one that came out in like 2011 or 2012. Yeah, that was yeah. the, yeah. Because I don't think Jason Segel was in the following ones. I don't remember. Was he even, cause he, oh yeah, because he was in it, but he also like wrote and directed it, I thought, as well. Oh, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. But regardless, mm -hmm. um, but of like the Jim Henson, the period when Jim Henson was actually alive and working on mm -hmm. these, um, yeah, the Muppet movie and the Muppet show in particular were pretty much the majority of my exposure to these uh, uh, creations. Uh, of gotcha. course, the original Star Wars as well, like Empire Strikes mm -hmm. Back and Return of the Jedi had a lot of Henson uh, creations mm -hmm. in the cast. So Obviously, we've already talked about this off mic, but you are familiar with Muppet's Christmas Carol. Naturally, I would yes. have brought that of to this course. show so fast. Of course. But um, yeah, this actually was, as you said, after Dark Crystal, because this is the last film that Jim Henson ever directed right. himself. So um, right after this, I believe, was Muppet's Christmas Carol, which is the first one that Brian Henson, his son, mm -hmm. directed. So it's right at this very popular but very tragic period of the mm -hmm. Henson Company. Um, were you... So, I mean, I guess you know a little bit about this from watching previous Henson movies, but how much did the weirdness affect you? Like, you can't watch this movie without feeling like it's kind of weird. It's just, yeah. it's strange. Honestly, for me, that's mm -hmm. that's a high point. Like, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a major selling point for me because when it comes to movies in general, like, the weirder the better. Mm, okay. um, I don't always like weird movies, but if it's going to be weird, I appreciate when it goes all the way weird. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I feel like there's certain things that I like that you just, especially watching it for something like this podcast or something where you have recommended it to someone else, mm -hmm. You ha I have this like out of body experience almost watching it of like, okay, so this is how someone else is watching it. And there's some things you just have to buy into mm -hmm. and like be cool with to enjoy it. Like you're never going to enjoy it if you come into it with like a some standard of normal like you just have to completely jump into this and I feel like um, musicals are the same way mm -hmm. obviously this is a puppet musical so mm -hmm. although I don't think it's we could debate but I it's don't think less, it's a musical so much. No it's less a musical than I think most of the movies that like the Jim Henson Company does mm -hmm. I would say you know because if you look at the Muppet movie that's like a straight-up musical right there are like big song and dance numbers Throughout, yeah, this and one, other people are singing. It's not just one, right? Person. Yeah, I think Bowie had what five songs in this soundtrack, five uh, songs yeah, like total, and not all of them were turned into musical numbers. Like right. only a, only a couple of those five. So um, yeah, I understand why you said that it's like kind of a musical because most movies in general do not have song and dance numbers at all. Mm -hmm. So having even a couple, I think, would qualify it more yeah. or less as a musical, quote unquote musical. But yeah, it's definitely. It's it's different. It's almost a rock opera or something yeah, like a, a little bit. It's, it's got a different flavor. But one more fun mm -hmm. fact: uh, there were a couple other rock stars considered for this. I part. actually did see did this. You see I this love in it. Your research? Yeah. Yeah. Go on, go on, have it. I actually saw a couple different people cited. So mm -hmm. um, one place I saw Michael Jackson and yep. Sting. Mm -hmm. Who uh, else did you see? I saw I know Mick Jagger. Yes, Mick and Jagger Prince. was the other one. And Prince, yeah, Prince yeah, Prince yeah. is the only one that I could see being possibly better than Bowie. Yes, that's, I thought the same thing, because I was like, Michael Jackson and Sting would have been so, like, I don't know, there's just this weird artistry to David Bowie that I don't think Which, Michael Jackson and Sting did the same I the I same completely vein. agree. Um, but that brings me to a, a, a minor sidebar here. Mm -hmm. Is Prince the black David Bowie? Uh, 
Slash is David Bowie the white prince? Yeah, I think so. I think they did a lot of really similar, like, gender-bending things. They had... I think I I could see it. Yeah, yeah, they are. Okay, a we're kind of yin and yang. We're, we're in agreement here. Great. I would love a <laughs> no sequel. Debate, to, but I would love a sequel where, uh, uh, to this movie where they play brothers. But yes, unfortunately, for two reasons that cannot happen. I was gonna say unfortunately for three reasons this yeah, that could not happen. But well, oh, Jim Henson. Oh, oh, okay, but, but we still want the Muppets. Okay, yeah, right, absolutely. Right, right, right. Yes, yeah, it's tragically after its time. We will never have a film like that in our in our lifetime. Not on this plane, at least. <laughs> of course. Um, so, yeah, expectations-wise, it wasn't weirder than you expected. I honestly yeah. will tell you, I thought you were going to hate this. Really? Yes. Okay. I mean, I totally understand why you would think that. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have been as surprised as I, as I just was, but, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, all for the radio drama. <laughs> for sure, it's not my kind of movie, Mm -hmm. But that is exactly why I love doing this podcast is because I get to watch movies that I probably would never go out of my way to watch. You know, mm -hmm. eventually somewhere down the line someone might be like, oh, you need to watch this. Um, because I, I did know a lot of people, like even in high school, who were really into this movie. Um, and I can kind of see why, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you are a huge David Bowie fan. This is like, granted, 80s Bowie, not my favorite Bowie. Nothing mm -hmm. wrong with it, just not my personal favorite era. Who's your favorite? 70s Bowie? 70s Bowie, oh, definitely, okay. mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but you know, I, for, he was definitely doing his thing, mm -hmm. leaning all the way into it. I appreciated yes. that. It didn't feel like he was like, it didn't feel like he was contractually obligated to do this movie. It felt like something he actually wanted to do, which mm -hmm. was great. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you liked it because I love this. I mean, I don't have a new and interesting story, backstory to bring to this one. This is yet another movie okay. that I just watched as a kid and thought it was so great. Awesome. It was, I just have... A memory. So this is another movie that uh, my friend Tia and I watched a lot, mm -hmm. and we used to go to our pool in the summer, and we would do this game where we'd like go under the water and come up and like change our hair, and they'd have to guess <laughs> who that person was. <laughs> and obviously, it's a very limiting game because you can't really execute all that much. But yeah, when had... your hair is just soaking wet, it's not like <laughs> yeah. it's pliable, but not like. Yeah, <laughs> in your head it looks way different than like what the other person is seeing. So we had the same like two or three people we'd come back to and we would always go under the water, push our eyebrows up so they were like spiked <laughs> up and come back up and you'd know that was Jareth from um, Goblin The King. Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Oh uh, yeah, but I just, I love this movie. It's, I, I love the Henson films too. And honestly, I had not seen The Dark Crystal. I don't yeah. have any other like comparison. Yeah, um, from what I understand, that one is much darker thematically, mm -hmm. and um, the little bit of research that I did, um, you know, it said that what Henson was going for with this this particular movie was that Dark Crystal came out darker than he intended it to, and so he was trying to find a more of a balance of like humor mm. and lightheartedness. So um, I thought it was interesting because I have not seen Dark Crystal. Yeah. Um, I'm not super super familiar with it. Um, I just know that it exists. Um, but like, how old were you when you saw this movie for the first time? Probably like, I don't know, nine or ten. Something okay. like a kid. You know, was this like an indi independent freaking. discovery or is it something that your parents brought to you or somebody else brought to you? No, this was something I think uh, Tia's family had watched. Mm. She had it at her house. They always had like a ton of DVDs and stuff. And um, so, yeah, I think we just watched it spending the night at her house one time. And then it's one we just like played over and over and over again mm -hmm. and quoted and loved the songs and loved David Bowie's music independently of that. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. You know, being that age and from the generation I'm from, that was probably my first introduction to David Bowie as well. So David Bowie is always like okay. the Goblin King first and foremost ah. to me. And then, uh, you know, a, a rock star after that. Well, let's, um, let's talk about Bowie in this movie just a little bit here. Yeah. Because I know we got some stuff that we wanted to get into, but um, I... I found it very interesting because I know that Bowie fans tend to, from what I can tell, really dig this movie. Obviously, because mm -hmm. he's such a major presence in it. Mm -hmm. um, but and iconic, like, and it is his iconic. His outfits yes. are amazing. His like, it just really plays into Bowie's brand. Like, yeah, this was definitely, totally in line. But and yes, it's like, if it was anybody other than him, you'd look at that and be like, not cool. Like, it's not a cool look. It looks just peculiar. Is I all guess. you know what I mean? It's I like thought it was pretty cool. the combination of like tights and the Seinfeld frilly shirt, which <laughs> for actually that's kind of exactly what Jennifer Connelly was wearing too, except like her pants oh, yes. were looser. Um, Lots of frilly shirts. Yeah, their outfits were almost the same, except she was wearing jeans and he was wearing very tight tights. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's uh, his performance felt 
very interesting. It was a, it was kind of a, a, a and of course, we are, we definitely need to talk about Jennifer Connelly as well in this mm-hmm. conversation. But I mean, it, it's almost not fair to put a teenage child actor up against like a freaking superstar mm-hmm. in this particular capacity because it's just like he's a charisma machine for one yeah. thing, um, which plays into his character as well mm-hmm. as just like the persona that he brings to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's such a strange kind of enigmatic performance, I thought. Like mm-hmm. what, when you were younger and watching it, what were you, do you remember what your thoughts were then? Has your perspective on this character changed? as you've gotten older? Yeah, absolutely. And this is actually like what I want to talk about. But my, I probably haven't watched this movie for a long time. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long. It might have been on TV, whatever, 31 Days of Halloween or anything like that. But it, I hadn't seen this, at least like sat down and watched it all the way through, probably since I was a kid. And watching it now, like the reading I had on it was totally different when I was a kid. When I was a kid, like he was just cool and like charming and he's uh, you know kind of seducing her more and less but in a way that didn't feel weird or off-putting to me Um, and yeah he seemed super cool and it all made sense now watching it like I see the melodrama and the Mm -hmm. fairy tale and all of it like even like you're saying Jennifer Connelly I think her performance at the beginning I was kind of like what is going on but I think that was on purpose like I think her you're supposed to really see, and I mean, I felt this because remembering like being a teenager and there's just some stuff that was just like, oh my God, the end of the world. And now you think about it and you're like, why was I so upset? Why was that such a big deal? Like, why did I react like that? Why it's did almost, I say that? In the beginning, it's almost like she gets upset to kind of deflect the fact that she was late for this thing that she clearly already agreed to. Yeah. Because her first scene, she's just essentially goofing off. She's just yeah. out in the woods doing nothing and then she's like, oh, no, I'm late. And she mm-hmm. like sprints back home and her parents are like, we were worried. We didn't die. And she was like, leave me alone, God. Uh, and, I can't do anything right. Yeah, yeah, but it's like, she was just, it was almost like she was getting upset as a defense mech, like to avoid getting, you know, yeah, I to avoid blame. It was yeah. so strange. Yeah, but also I see just like, when you're a teenager and instead of seeing something objectively from like, I was late, my parents are upset mm-hmm. because I screwed up. Like, it was a combination of that, those expectations when you're a teenager that, like, kind of are over what you can truly deliver. Like, yeah. you're trying to grow into your expectations, but other people are seeing you as, like, almost an adult. And so you just screw up all the time because you can't quite, you haven't grown to the level of what people expect of you. But then also, there's just this, like, raging hormone of, like, Instead of seeing something objectively or empathetically, everything is just targeted to you and you're confused and emotional and just freaking out when like, if you just took a step back, it's like, this isn't actually that big a deal. They're not really even that mad. Just like, it's fine. But I... I, (laughs) It felt like they weren't mad at all, except her stepmom got mad. Yeah. Because she was acting like an insane person, like, yeah. it's like she wasn't For even being that, a teenager. She wasn't even mad at all. She was like, "Hey, you're you're late. Is everything okay?" She's like, "Leave me alone, God. Ugh. Go to my room." Yeah, she treats me like a wicked stepmother. Yeah, like, which oh, okay. she did also. Yeah, yeah it, which uh, that's you have these stories in your head as a teenager of like, and uh, just okay, just gonna give my broad strokes thing that I want to talk about is how this whole movie. It's a story about like that weird time between being a kid and actually kind of being maybe not an adult adult, but like a teenager, a a grown up and how like weird and confusing and scary and how much is kind of shrouded in mystery. Mm -hmm. Like you don't understand your own feelings. You don't understand other people's expectations of you. And then you don't understand these external forces that you know are going to impact you at some point, but you can't even imagine what that's going to be like. Mm-hmm. So it seems so scary and labyrinthine, if you right. will. Right. Tr- no, it's true. And uh, I was also kind of trying to unpack some of the metaphor within this story because, mm-hmm. first of all, very early in the film, they set up kind of like where the influences for this yep. come from. Because I've got front and center, they have a very clear shot of the book's 
in Sarah's bedroom, which are the Wizard of Oz, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland, mm -hmm. uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales, a few other things like that. So it, it wears its influences on its sleeve. And yeah. it's very much trying to kind of create a new fairy tale, which mm -hmm. sometimes successful, sometimes not. Like, you know, the Grimm's Fairy Tales published edition I mean, those stories weren't new, but they were essentially like standardizing folk tales. Mm -hmm. So, and then later on, you know, 50, 60 odd years later, there were the Alice in Wonderland books. Mm -hmm. And then 50 years after that, you've got uh, Wizard of Oz. So it's like you have instances, concrete examples throughout history of people creating new fairy tales mm -hmm. to kind of speak to their era that become classics and become kind of, you know, universally known. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that the more traditional, longer standing fairy tales were. Um, and I think that this is kind of reaching for that as well. And to a certain extent, I feel like it succeeds. The reason I think it does succeed is because, as you say, it does connect to a lot of very tangible, um, identifiable situations and feelings within the character mm -hmm. of, uh, of Sarah. Yeah, it's interesting you're taking it as a new fairy tale because I took it more as. It, it uses the fairy tale as the taking off point. Like the fairy tale is your childhood brain. Mm -hmm. And then everything from that is kind of how you grow into adulthood. Like it's, it is, you know, and I think that's why all of the, the um, influences are so front and center. It doesn't try to couch anything too much in like metaphor or anything. It's because it's like, it wants you to read this as like a fairy tale arc but then the details are kind of modern. But yeah, yeah. yeah potato, uh, potato, possibly. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, the execution of it within the story I thought was very, uh, much, <laughs> much more complex than I was expecting it to be. Mm -hmm. Like the idea that, you know, the challenges that you're gonna face in life are often not easily defined for yeah. one thing. Like, it seems pretty straightforward. Oh, get to the end of this maze in this amount of time, and that's it. And it's like, oh, nope, changing the game. Mm -hmm. um, solutions often are not immediately clear. Um, the world doesn't necessarily follow rules, and you have to be prepared to think on your feet and be confident in your actions. And I feel like that's a lot of complex uh, life material to fit into this kind of goofy 80s fantasy puppet movie. Yeah. Um, and I was not uh, expecting that. And I was impressed by it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, the most nuanced and complex kind of point that it's making is sort of summed up in the end with the interaction between um, Sarah and uh, Jareth when she's like reciting her play part mm -hmm. again and he's kind of doing this whole like, why don't, just, do, just do what I tell you to do and I will give yeah. you anything. And that was kind of the thesis, that was at least the thesis I took on this viewing was mm -hmm. how complex adult relationships are yeah. and how kind of mysterious the influences of sex and love and all that are going to be on your life when you're looking at them as a child. Like yeah. all of that is just so far above your head, but you still know of them as like really impactful forces in the universe that yeah. are going to come find you at some point. And to handle that in a way that's like, I really took that as like an adult exchange of power in a relationship and how do you navigate that when, you know, he clearly was trying to have power over her, but in this way that was also like, I will give you power over me. Like it was yeah. very well, complex. And that's the thing, it's like Jareth in that scene in particular, he is manipulative in a way that real people are manipulative. Mm -hmm. It's like, you, it's that was kind of in a very, uh, if you'll excuse the expression, the very crystallized version of like how adults manipulate each other, especially mm -hmm. in like relationships or something like that. But like this idea of like, do these things that I want you to do and I'll do anything for you. No, that's not the way things work because if you're doing whatever they want, you know, that's not, that's, but people fall for it every day. And it's like, that was what made it so interesting that the thing that she, the line that she couldn't remember that ended up being the, Goblin King's downfall was you have no power over me, mm -hmm. which is something that many real world adults have a hard time saying to other real world adults. Right. And that ends up be and you know, it's that ends up being the, the root of so many just abusive relationships of every kind. Yeah. And so that uh, getting that into this story in a way that is very easy for 
younger viewers to grasp. I thought that was a really um, that was a really sharp move. I thought that it, it really added a lot of weight to this story altogether, and uh, um, I was impressed by it. I thought it was I thought it was really good. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's something, you know, I you wonder with like, so if this is for kids, and I watched it as a kid, and that's not, I didn't read into it in that way, but you know how much of that gets into mm -hmm. your head, and now watching it as an adult, I read it entirely that way. Like every mm -hmm. time Jareth was on screen, it was like okay, this is some kind of metaphor, I guess, for love and sex as a, as a power. Mm -hmm. And it was just a totally different experience. Yeah, and a couple of things came to mind for me. One was that, um, you know, how much of this story is, how much of this fantasy world is in uh, Sarah's head? How mm -hmm. much of this is her fabrication? Because she talks at the very beginning about you know, the Goblin King fell in love with her and this kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, so there, you could take that reading of it with this story being in her imagination and because there is something, obviously, especially today, I think that we're much more, we, we scrutinize much more any kind of a narrative that involves an adult man and a teenage girl. Yeah, And yeah. so, but in this particular case, it's almost like the way that the story unfolds and the way that it's presented, it feels more like this is happening, this is her perception of, right. of, this is her fabrication of this entire situation where she's imagining just this kind of ageless uh, figure mm -hmm. falling in love with her. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I feel like it is kind of set up in a way that makes it a little bit less icky than it would be if this is more of a straightforward narrative. Yeah. Um, but then also, I found this kind of interesting was that when I, again, when I was doing my research, and you may have seen the same thing, in the um, in the novelization of this movie, apparently, mm -hmm. it makes it pretty clear that Sarah's mother ran off with an actor, and the actor she ran off with is very physically similar to the Goblin King. Oh, and that's so it's like this this character in that version of this story is her uh, perception of this person that stole her mother away. Oh, that isn't, because I did notice she has these pictures in her mirror and it looks like David Bowie is in some of them, mm -hmm. but like regular David Bowie, not Goblin King David <laughs> Bowie. And I think you're supposed to believe that they're pictures of her mom, because like mm -hmm. she opens that book and it says like mom, and then mm -hmm. she has the pictures of the same, it looks like woman that you just see kind of from far away, but that's interesting. Yeah. And I don't know where that came from because what I, again, what I read, I, I went through the Wikipedia page because I was kind of interested in this. <laughs> Deep dives. That this script went through 25 drafts in a two and a half year period. Whoa. Which is not high in general, but in that compressed period of time, that's, yeah. that's a lot of drafts. So who knows what was in it in earlier versions of this story and, mm. and, and how this originated. Um, but it, um, yeah, it, there's a lot of different possibilities for this to be a pretty interesting metaphor in different contexts. Um, but I don't think that any of them are necessary. But the, the story is so loose and the details are so loose in a lot of these cases that it can be any number of things. And I think that's part of the reason why I feel like this story speaks to so many people still is because it's pliable. Mm -hmm. You know, the metaphor is very pliable because it doesn't get hung up on a lot of details. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably a fair point. Um, I, going back to your previous point about just the the age differential. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that a lot too on this viewing and like, why doesn't this feel weird to me? Should it feel weird to me? Mm -hmm. Will it feel, feel weird to me upon this viewing? And I'm totally with you. I think it's it's her conjuring. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not an older man pursuing her. It is her fantasy of mm -hmm. what reality could be like. So yeah, I'm with you on that one. But I would be interested in other takes because this one, just watching it this time, the things I took out of it seemed so vivid and so obvious and textually supported that, yeah, I would be interested in other takes. I was I was fascinated to see like how many people that I recognized worked on this story mm -hmm. with, um, I mean, written by Terry Jones from Monty Python fame. Oh, yes. Um, and apparently he had, it, this was a, a from what I understand, this was kind of a uh, uh, little bit of a frustrating writing experience with working with Jim Henson and trying to get the story right. And then mm -hmm. Jim Henson uh, recruited uh, George Lucas 
to help him with the edit, with the final edit. Oh, is that where he came in? I saw him credited, but... Yeah, he was, he was involved from the beginning, but he was apparently heavily involved in editing the final version. Mm -hmm. And what I found interesting was that uh, Jim Henson said that in an interview, he said that it was he got the first edit, and then they gave it to George Lucas to do a, a follow-up edit, and then they kind of collaborated after oh, that, cool. which was that he said, Jim Henson said that he was more fond of having long pauses in the dialogue, but he felt like that slowed down the story, whereas George Lucas was kind of merciless and making it quick, quick, quick. Mm -hmm. And so he said they kind of balanced each other out in that way to kind of mm -hmm. find a more natural pattern in a way that made the story unfold at a not-too-fast, not-too-slow kind of a pace. But I thought that was interesting, because George Lucas, if there's one thing he's not known for, it's dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was funny. And I love how that Industrial Light and Magic crew, like, all the different iconic people from that period that were all related mm -hmm. together, George Lucas, um, obviously Jim Henson, and uh, St uh, Steven Spielberg, and all of them, like... They were all friends, just yeah. making stuff together. Totally, That's so sweet. Well, yeah, just making stuff together with like thirty-five million dollar budgets. Like, yeah, like they're all like... independent geniuses, just all collaborating to make these technological so strides weird. for the industry. Hollywood in like the seventy, like the late sixties to the early eighties, kind of feels a little bit like it was a block with kids doing just playing with GI Joes, yeah. but they had, you know, they were adult men with zillion dollar budgets and yeah. cranking out some of the best movies that have ever been made. Just making mechanical sharks. Right. I let me tell you, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with ILM. I was oh, like yeah? totally all about ILM and just like special effects in general, but that was kind of like my like the nucleus of that was mm -hmm. you know George Lucas and Star Wars and stuff. And so this is kind of almost a, a like a missing link in that uh, in that kind of fascination because I, I don't know why I was never drawn to this movie when I was a kid. I think mm -hmm. it was because I wasn't really into fantasy stuff. Mm. Um, but the effects work and stuff like that is is really great. I might be getting ahead of myself here. We'll we'll, we'll talk more about this in a minute. I don't know how no. we get so far off track, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, did you have anything else that you want to talk about? It's like the fairy tale metaphor or like how that... Because uh, I, I think there is a lot to, to say there. I think that we kind of touched on the main points, though. Yeah, I mean, I could go through this and Socratic seminar this so hard. But um, let's go ahead and dive into the ILM LM stuff because I did mm -hmm. think that was really interesting, especially kind of in the trend we're in right now. Just another fun fact that the owl from the beginning is the first like attempt at a CGI creature, like a full creature that was CGI. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So now when we're like recreating the Jungle Book and mm -hmm. apparently Lilo and Stitch, which I assume is going to be very CGI creature heavy, like we are in this period of really flexing that muscle mm -hmm. and to see kind of where it started with this owl, which is, you know, now you can pick it apart, but yeah. it was still pretty incredible. So. Yeah, and I, that was one thing I noticed is that there was something like slightly off about the owl, but it still felt like really lifelike. Yeah. Um, and I, so I didn't I didn't realize that because it never crossed for a movie that early it never crossed my mind that it would be a fully CGI creature. Mm -hmm. But yeah, obviously I, not throughout. I'll just caveat right, you know yeah. it's a real owl sometimes. But that intro the like intro credits part. But that hybridization CGI. I feel like that is. It worked amazingly well in Jurassic Park, and I feel like this was like the launching pad for that, mm -hmm. combining real, in terms of something that exists in the physical world, yeah. with CGI and blending the line or blurring the line between the two. You know, that's a method that I think doesn't get nearly enough play in modern movies because it doesn't. Look, the main thing I want to bring up with this this movie in particular is that the physical and practical effects um, are some of the best I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, Partly because it's not like they're necessarily trying to replicate anything real. Mm. Um, and I think that today, partly for expense reasons, um, you know, it's much more common for filmmakers to go with the CGI version of whatever and have the actors just talk to like a tennis ball, mm -hmm. you know, and have everything green screened in. So I think that it gets overused today, and I think this movie is a prime example of like what you get when you go, you go with a fully physical world mm -hmm. and with all physical creatures, effects, and, and, and characters and things like that. And it's enormously difficult because yeah. it's like you gotta get everything right. If anything, one thing goes wrong, then you gotta reshoot it again. And especially they're shooting on film, so that's just mm -hmm. like money burning through the camera. Um, but you know, I feel like we've gotten to the point today where CGI has gotten so complex that it's 
I don't know if it's actually cheaper money-wise in terms of paying people to do stuff right. to go with a CGI creature than to do a physical puppet and to do it well. You know, yeah. I'm really not sure because as computer animation gets more detailed and, you know, as you and I know, because we both work in video industry, render times are outrageous mm -hmm. and, like, the amount of effort that goes into doing something that is just keeping pace, let alone pushing the envelope, mm -hmm. it's enormous. The, the amount of uh, time that people have to spend on it is huge. Yeah. Um, so I'm really not sure if it's actually more cost-effective to go CGI all the time. Um, right. But I, I don't know. It would be an interesting question, because, I mean, what we're dealing with, you know, in our day-to-day, -day, the scale is much smaller, mm -hmm. so the... The infrastructure is much smaller. Everything's a little bit more expensive, but uh, you know, at certain levels, you get much more processing power, and you, mm -hmm. so the render may be nothing. But then again, you're trying to do much more complex exactly. things. You're exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I yeah, it's it would be an interesting question to research because yeah. you know, how, fabrication costs probably haven't gone down all that much in the last couple of decades, but render costs probably have. Yeah. Well, fabrication probably hasn't gotten that much more expensive either, you know? It's like... Yeah, it's probably steady, but like... Like know. if somebody wanted to do Jaws today, mm -hmm. for example, you know, you'd have to build, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have to build a mechanical shark. You could do that digitally, but then again, the movie is really served well by not seeing the shark that much, which is a whole mm -hmm. different story on its own. Um, but I guess my... my the point that I was working towards with this was that there's a lot of things that I think, even if it was uh, done, if it was done digitally, mm -hmm. would not have the same effect. Like I think that a lot of this stuff is so heavily dependent on the fact that it is physical. Mm -hmm. um, aside from you know, I, taking the kind of like vinyl record nerd um, mm -hmm. thing of like, oh, it just sounds better on vinyl. It just mm -hmm. sounds better on the archaic technology. It just looks better as a puppet. Well, I mean, yes, there are certain things like the way the physicality of a, of a person in a suit or of a Muppet puppet mm -hmm. um, moves or the way the light strikes it. There are those aspects of it as well. But having, for example, the moment where Sarah falls down the hole with the helping hands. Oh, so cool. So cool. And it would never look nearly as cool if that was computer generated because... In your head, you're watching this and you're simultaneously thinking, those are hands, so that's cool. Yeah. The fact that there's a hundred people in the walls of this tunnel mm -hmm. all working blind, yeah. for one thing. Like, how do you get ten hands to make those faces and talk in unison when no, nobody can see their own hands? Yeah. Let alone anybody else's hands. It's amazing. Yeah, that one and the... Um... I mean, the, I think the most iconic one of this movie is the glass balls that yes, Jared yes. does all this stuff. And it was literally like a juggler. Mm -hmm. I think it was Michael Motion, I believe. It just with his hands behind behind David Bowie's back, blindly mm -hmm. juggling mm -hmm. these glass balls. So you, there's all these like shots of him just dropping a ball because he can't see anything. And Which, he's like, you know, it's By the way, I, I meant to bring this up to you. When you were in college, mm -hmm. did you have those people who were in like juggling clubs or whatever who would like walk around campus and like nonchalantly be like manipulating those little gold or the uh. little glass balls like in, in their hands and trying to act like no big deal. I know it's pretty cool, but I'm not yeah. going to say anything about Physics it. Physics don't apply you know. to me. Oh. Uh, we had some of those at I UF. Can't <laughs> For those, sure. But I'm sure Maybe they exist. I mean, it's, is it just like the hacky sack kids, except for it's pretty much except, balls? Uh, nerdier, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Like less hippie, more like inclined to wear a top hat, I guess. Yes. Okay. Yes. We definitely had those kids. I'm trying to think if, I mean, if I would have seen that walking down the streets in New York, it would have been <laughs> impressive. Like that's a lot of traffic. But anyway, didn't want to get too off, off track yeah. on that one. But I was just curious if that was something that <laughs> is I that noticed. A <laughs> just UF. The no. juggling program at UF is unmatched, so. <laughs> Ironically, not the Florida College or the Clown School, so. Oh. Or a circus. Um, I did think this one, back to your point, is a great example of why practical and CGI, mm. they're not opposed to each other. Like, right. they, I feel like now the, the argument is that, like, CGI is better than practical or practical is better than CGI. Mm -hmm. More often, I think as you said, because the vinyl record kids, like, um, every, everything old is better, but... Which, by the way, 
I didn't rib you on it last week when we were talking about Shaun of the Dead and you referred mm -hmm. to records as vinyl CDs. Did I? Oh, <laughs> did I? Okay. But that's, well, yeah, that's fine. It's back to my point. Um, they're not opposed to each other. I think everything works better when you're using a little bit of all of them where it makes sense. So I feel like Jim Henson got that. He wasn't a purist on any right. of them. He's going to use them all to the best of their ability. And I think that part of that was probably a symptom of the fact that he was working at a time where CG could flatly not compete with what he was doing yet. Mm -hmm. It was not a matter of making a choice between, well, should we do this practically? Should we do this with CGI? That really wasn't even an option yet. You know, they were doing blue screen stuff on Star Wars, and they were doing... Um, obviously computer animation in this movie, but it was never, it was not yet at the point where um, it was even feasible to come up and say, like, make the choice of doing this entire movie with, like, computer-generated characters. And so I'm very curious, if, if Henson had been alive for, like, another 10 or 15 years, like, what he would think about, not only what he would think about, but how he would utilize the more uh, developed computer technologies that were available um, in the mid to late 90s to the 2000s. Um, I, I just don't know. I honestly have no idea. He seems like the type of person who would embrace it to a mm -hmm. certain extent, but still have a great um, desire to kind of push his own craft yeah. um, farther. Well, I think that's exactly right, and I would argue that even though he couldn't have done some of the things he did with CGI, like he was still interested in it. By putting that owl in the movie, mm -hmm. he is staking a claim in something that some people would say, you know, is going to be the end of his business, but is still, you know, they're still making Muppet movies mm -hmm. in 2018. Yeah. TV doesn't kill radio. Right. You can have all of them, and I feel like that's, that's an amazing kind of statement on his part to include something like that and say, like, this can all work. It's all for the good. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, probably the best puppeteering I've ever seen in oh, this movie. I like, mean, it's so next level it's not even funny like the combination of uh, the, the the what are they called the fireys the like flamingo dragon oh, yeah. demons or whatever <laughs> they are um that whole sequence which didn't really serve any purpose in the very 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 loose plot structure nope. was unreal like i remember yeah. seeing something similar to that in an old, old episode of the muppet show when they mm -hmm. had like a jabberwocky segment mm -hmm. um and this was kind of like taking that to, you know, times 10, uh -huh. um, where they're like disassembling their own bodies and dancing around and still looking like weirdly alive creatures. Yeah. It was so strange and so cool. Um, and, yeah. And I, I don't know, it's like that, again, it's one of those things where with CGI, it's hard to impress people with something like that. With this, it's not just the thing itself, or with regular, not even CGI. If this was a traditionally animated movie, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be that impressive. Right. It would be kind of just silly. To see it executed with what you know are physical puppets is insane. Yeah. It makes your brain do like somersaults. And I feel like even as a kid, you would recognize that. I mean, yeah. uh, by a certain age, by like nine or 10, like you would still recognize that. That with animation, anything is possible. But with puppeteering, it takes some incredible ingenuity to pull off Things like that. Right. It's like science plus magic. Like you, you're looking for the seams on everything and yet like it's still blowing your mind. Mm -hmm. But then also just the fact that it's not just the animation that would be, you know, probably computer generated if this movie was made today, but also the environments, which, you know, they faked it in a lot of cases too. Like, are you familiar with matte paintings? Mm -hmm. Okay. So like definitely they use matte paintings, which for those who are not familiar, it's basically where you paint a background on a pane of glass and then position it with the camera lens so that you get partly live action and partly a hand-painted background. And I, th mm -hmm. I feel like they use that uh, to good effect with like the wide shots of the labyrinth with the mm -hmm. castle in the background and stuff. Um, but also the uh, just when she's first going into the labyrinth, when Sarah's first going into the labyrinth, you see a lot of... I thought this was a really interesting choice that I'd never seen before. You see a lot of... Um, like really dirty, dingy, like rough, rocky walls, but with glitter. Mm -hmm. They're like glittering. And that's such a strange thing that I've never seen before. But I don't, I mean, that's, again, the way light plays off of something like glitter. Mm -hmm. You can replicate it with a computer, but it's like, it's not real, you know? Yeah. To see that as a real thing, it's so crazy. Yeah, I think, and that wasn't interesting. I mean, the whole... Uh, creative design of this entire thing was just like insane. It's 
from like the different plot things, the different characters that show mm -hmm. up and the different weird ways that they just established this world as a very, very strange place where so amazing and incredible. And I totally appreciated them watching it this time because you just, it was just a really creative group of people that worked on this. Mm -hmm. uh, Brian Froud was um, the concept artist for this. And I, I just, I kept just being blown away on my like, you know, 15th viewing of this movie about the, the riddles they came up with, but also some of the characters and some of the designs of the different mazes and the designs of how characters would interact with each other. They had, you know, these weird lizard dinosaurs being ridden on by these strange medieval mm -hmm. knight-looking characters and, you know, the rocks, how they had their rocks move and animate. Um, and there was just a couple moments where it was like, just great. The guy, the older man with like the bird hat yes. and how they interacted with each other, but also just how that looked and how, I don't know, the whole thing just like tied together beautifully. And you could tell it was just people being like, and then we could, and then what if they look like this? And then this one's upside down, but this one's right side up and he tells the truth. And yeah. just, ugh, I think I, that, I, I feel like Froud should be as well known as like Tim Burton in his design work, you yeah. know, in his design mm -hmm. for film work. Cause it, you're absolutely right. It's so it's it's completely unlike anything I've ever seen before, with like roots in kind of traditional medievalist fantasy design, mm -hmm. but taken in such a strange direction that's still kind of anchored to something familiar, but off in God knows where. And um, even some some of the stuff like the, uh, the the moment where they're in the tunnels and the what do they they call it the cleaner. Mm -hmm. The like giant drill coming yeah. down the hallway, um, which never really—I'll be totally honest—it did not feel scary to me. But like that design is wild with like the different drill bits going in different directions. Yeah, and then the kind it of punchline. Yeah. yeah, the punchline to that whole thing is that once it wheels past, it's just like a couple of creatures pedaling it like yeah. a bicycle. Yeah, it felt very Seuss. Like it made yeah, me think Dr. of the Grinch, Seuss. where like exactly. they're yeah. all riding on things and playing musical instruments. But yeah, it's like this very. I mean, it felt scary to me. You think about like what it's gonna do if mm -hmm. it reaches you, because there's like, yeah, like you said, like the corkscrew is going one way and a giant drill going one mm -hmm. way. And, but yeah, then you see them and they're just all kind of popping up and down on yeah. pedals. Yeah. It's very funny. Yeah, you, Dr. Seuss definitely is another another great influence on this, I feel like. It mm -hmm. ha has to be. Yeah, and that's a fun fact for Brian Froud being obviously a huge part of this movie. Also, his baby was Toby, Toby in this I saw movie. that, yeah. They forgot to put his books in that first, like, pan shot of the influences. They forgot to put any of his books in there. So oh, man. Any of his illustrations. I also read that um, they got into a little bit of trouble with Maurice Sendak's uh, lawyer. Oh, really? Because the storyline of Labyrinth was so similar to a Maurice Sendak book, whose title escapes me, that during production... Um, Maurice Sendak's lawyer con like contacted the studio and advised them uh, not to or not to go through with that script, but apparently they settled and they put his they put Sendak's name in the um, oh, okay. uh, in the credits. So there weren't major story changes; they just went with right. What they, they just oh, okay. basically they put an acknowledgement in uh, the in the credits, um, which I thought was kind of a classy move. It was something like Jim Henson acknowledges the uh, influential work of Maurice Sendak or something like that. Oh, so pretty nice. loose, but it we'll works. So funny because you hear about that like you can never win that case if you're saying like this was my idea I have a script written mm -hmm. just like this, but I guess if you're like famous and influential if enough you can. <laughs> if win your that book case. has been published, then yes, there's maybe, a good possibility. Maybe you you've can got make a case. It. You got a case. Um, so anything else about the the technical that you wanted to talk um, about? Really, just one other thing was that the uh, the use of forced perspective I thought was fantastic because it only mm. comes up a couple of times. One when Sarah encounters the worm who's telling her to look for the door. Yes. And oh. you look, it's, the camera's pointed straight at a wall and it's like there is nothing there. Yep. And then she walks through and oop, there's a hole. There's yeah. a gap. And I love how like she walks through and as the viewer, you still can't see anything. Right. And then she walks and she just disappears behind yes. the other side of that wall and you're like, oh, there's a it's, passage there. Yeah, and I, I thought, again, that is one of those things where like, yeah, you could definitely do that with a computer, but it would not look, because especially if it was one of those things where it's like, bloop, I just like drifted through this wall as yeah. though it's like some kind of ethereal membrane. Yeah. But having it actually built, like physically constructed in such a way that you cannot tell that there was a gap in the wall is 
such crazy skill. And I feel like everybody who worked on this movie deserves to be extremely proud of it because things like that, they're mm -hmm. very difficult to pull off. But having this on your resume, I, it's, it's, especially for the people that worked on the sets, mm -hmm. not even the designers, but the people that actually constructed the sets and constructed yeah. the costumes and all that, it's, it's oh, fantastic. And the other major force perspective thing was um, there's a moment with, uh, with David Bowie where it shows what appears to be a statue of his face yeah. carved out of stone, but then the camera moves and it was just a forced perspective shot, and once the angle is slightly off, it just looks like rocks. Yeah, oh yeah, I noticed that one too, and that is oh, just like, you. yeah, you couldn't achieve that with CGI, it just would be lame, yeah. like what's the point? Yeah, exactly. This is like, it's cool, and it establishes this world as so fantastical, but also like weird and mm -hmm. physically different from ours, and just yeah. amazing, amazing, it's a masterpiece. Uh, yeah. Um, well, cool. Any other just things that you wanted to call out from this movie that you noticed um, or liked? Favorites? <laughs> not favorites? Well, I guess, and I guess this kind of does fall into the uh, CGI thing, but like one of the biggest parts of it that uh, I, I realized would be the hugest hang-up if this movie had been made, let's say today, with all computer-generated effects instead of live puppets or whatever, mm -hmm. is that I noticed that when Jennifer Connelly is acting in this movie without another adult, mm -hmm. or when she's just talking to herself or she's talking to Toby, her acting was bad. I thought her acting was really subpar. Oh. And granted, totally understand, it's an early role for her. She was like 14 or 15 when she did this movie, so I'm not throwing shade at Jennifer Connelly. I think mm -hmm. she's great. But when she was acting by herself or talking oh. to herself and not actually interacting with another character, bad. But when she was at, interacting with a, and a real, like whether they were costumed or whether it was Bo, or you know whether it was like a puppet or whether it was Bowie or whatever, mm -hmm. a physical, living, breathing, moving something to react off of. She was she was great. Uh -huh. Like she wasn't just fine. She was huh. great. And if she had been happy, she'd been forced to basically react to and interact with a tennis ball on a stick. This movie would have sucked. It would have not been good. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. I, I wrote that off at the beginning, at least, as her being that like over dramatic teenager like have you ever overheard I know like well I don't have teenagers really in my life right now I don't know about you but like just my only interactions right now would be like overhearing teenagers in mm -hmm. public and sometimes you hear them and they sound like bad actors they sound <laughs> so forced and so like just just like what are you saying who's yeah. making you say these that's words? true that's true and, and also strange. like whenever like I mean Hell, I still do this as an adult. Is like sometimes when I'm like by myself, I'll just test out lines and oh, stuff. Yeah, I'll yeah. say things out loud, not to Getting anybody. Getting arguments in my head with somebody that like will never come up. I'm like something, I'm something will pop into my head, and I'll be like, I wonder how this sounds out loud because I don't want to say I don't want to sound dumb if I say it out <laughs> loud to a real person. Um, but yeah, I do that in the car sometimes. I was gonna say, have you ever done that in the car and then like realize someone actually is in the car? I just get <laughs> so in my head sometimes when I'm driving that I've like said something out loud and then been like, oh no. I did that one time when my sister was in the car, but she was asleep, thank God. Nice. And so I was like, oh no, thank God. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that, that is a good point. That is, so yeah, I'll, I'll give him that much. I, I will give her the benefit of the doubt and assume that it was just a very deep cut acting choice, mm -hmm. but uh, we'll see. I, 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 no, we won't see. What am I talking about? <laughs> She's still acting to this I day. I will so. ask, Jennifer, ask Jennifer Connelly about it next time I see her. Were you just a bad actor or <laughs> like a teen? Where are you going I always here? wonder how actors would react to that if I told them, hey, you're a much better actor now than when you were in such and such a movie. Because I just watched... I, just I watched, have an idea how they might react. I just watched I Halloween 1, which is Jamie Lee Curtis's uh -huh. first movie role. Oh, yeah. And I thought, her acting is not good in that movie. Sorry, love her. She's a national treasure. But if I yeah. met her today and we were actually having that conversation, it wouldn't be the only thing I said to this person, yeah. but I'd be like, hey... I think your acting in the new Halloween is a thousand times better than in the first Halloween. Your Activia commercials are way better than <laughs> Halloween 1. I um. mean, your performance is better. Anyway. Yes, but fair point. I, I could see it either way. Um, anything else? Um, not really. I did notice that there were like um, several moments in the score where it sounded so much like Top Gun, it wasn't even funny. Oh, yeah, there's like, a lot of drum machines, a lot of synths. Yeah, like, but not just drum so machines. So 80s. I honestly was expecting Giorgio Morador, to, who did the music for Top Gun, mm -hmm. to, I thought he was going to be the uh, the composer of this movie. He's not. I don't remember who he is, but I was really expecting, I was like, if he was just doing double duty with the same music, <laughs> like changing a couple of notes here and there. 
Um, unfortunately, not the case, because that would have uh, been amazing. <laughs> that would have been a deep cut. That would have mm -hmm. read a whole nother layer into this movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I've gushed about everything that I have. Yeah, yeah. I, I love this movie. It's a masterpiece. And every time, just see a whole nother layer to it. Good. I, I love that. Like, even if it's not a movie that was part of my childhood, like when somebody has those movies, I... I get it because mm -hmm. I am like I definitely have those movies for myself where I'm like mm -hmm. I was introduced to this at the right time and it's like I mean again Star Wars if I hadn't really been introduced to like the original Star Wars movies when I was seven years old mm -hmm. I have no idea what I would react if I saw them for the first time in my 20s I have no idea what I would think of them yeah but it's I, I, that's not to say they're bad I feel like it adds a lot. Yeah, definitely. And it's nice when those things, like, they hold up. You don't watch them later and think, like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of, like, childish filling in the yeah. gaps here that, that carried this movie through my memory. But And, and I will say this. Like, one of, to me, one of the biggest tests of whether a movie is, quote-unquote, successful is, like, do I think that this is the movie that they wanted to make? Do I think that they successfully created the movie that they set out to make? And in this case, I think they absolutely did. I don't think mm. that it's like something where they had to settle for something they didn't want. I think that yeah. everyone that was involved in the creative process of the movie, I mean, everybody has to make uh, compromises, but I think right. that this satisfied the vision of everyone who was like a key player in the film. Yeah, you gotta, I mean, I don't know what else they could have been aiming for. No, I mean, it's it, it, it feels like it all clicks. Yeah. So give me your review then. Sure, okay. Jim Henson's final directorial outing feels like a moonshot, and the result is definitely a one-of-a-kind movie experience. The loose story ends up serving mainly as a platform for some of the most intricate and mind-blowing puppetry ever seen on film, and for David Bowie's performance as the iconic Jareth the Goblin King, with Jennifer Connelly absolutely holding her own in an early role as the protagonist. Nostalgic overhype notwithstanding, Labyrinth serves as perhaps the best example of the extremely specific magic that Henson's workshop brought to life. Excellent. Couldn't I, agree more. I realize that I write very long sentences for my three-sentence reviews, but <laughs> Got to pack deal as with much it. in with there. <laughs> See, I'm the opposite. I was always, like, bare minimum page requirements in college. Like, I just want to get to the point. So five I'm, paragraphs, like, squeezing five out sentences three sentences each. I'm like, no commas. We're just going to go. Uh, all right. So as sad as I am to leave the labyrinth, what do we have next? Well... Do we want to continue with our Halloween picks, or do you want to go with a non-Halloween movie for this one? Let's keep with Halloween. All I'm right, in cool. the spirit of the season. Great. So, do you want to go with something completely bug nuts crazy, or a serious and understated grown-up drama? Whoa. A Halloween drama, though? Mm-hmm. Uh, how bug nuts crazy? Like, gory? Like my mind's going to be done in or like do I get follow up questions we haven't really done Okay this, so I want to okay yes you get follow up questions cuz I I I want you to be as I want you to be somewhat informed in this choice okay. So when I say bug nuts crazy yes gory but in a way that I would be shocked if you were upset at all by it let me mm. put it that way Okay now I'm intrigued let's go with that one Okay awesome Um so once again we are going with a sequel okay. but that's okay cuz the first movie doesn't matter um, okay. Because the first movie gets recapped in the first five to ten minutes of this movie. Excellent. I love when they do that. Yeah. It is, um, I would say, it, it's a one of the best early works by a guy who went on to direct super blockbusters. Mm. Um, and it's also a prime example of some really wild special effects. And it's kind of a... It's, it's a fun watch, it's a wild ride, and it feels like everybody in it, maybe not having a fun, fun time, but uh, it looks like it was a lot of fun for at least one person. Okay. Kay, have you seen Evil Dead 2? No, I have not. Don't even know that much about it, so now I am very intrigued, but it's zombies too, right? Sort of. Oh, okay. Is Unclear. it like one of those like people <laughs> if infected by a virus? Okay. All right. Well, here we go. Yeah. Strap let's do in, it. folks, because this one, like I say, I'm not underselling it when I say it's one of the craziest movies I've ever seen. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm beyond excited to talk about it. Oh, so no. 
Awesome. I hope you I hope that you enjoy it as much as I do, or at least at the very least. <laughs> I hope you were flabbergasted by it. I'm flabbergasted right now. I'm a little nervous. I don't know. This sounds intense, but we shall see. Um, all right. Well, if you want more content before next week, go check out our Facebook or our Instagram at KHaveYouSeen. For this week, I'm Kari. And I'm Kyle. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Dance, magic, dance. Dance, magic, dance. Dance, magic, dance. Dance, magic, dance.